0: Have you ever asked yourself if art can change the world what is the color of protest
1: as indigenous people our existence is our resistance
2: on today's show reprogramming the root i tapped into the world of two friends that are committed to real radical change My conversations with Indigenous leader Frankie Anora and Indian artist Shiloh Shiv Suleiman came down to one thing. We have to reprogram the way we think and call out the systems that keep us separated from Earth. So I guess you may be wondering what an Indigenous leader has in common with an Indian artist, right? Well, have a listen. I'm your host, Shilpi Chotre, and this is People Over Plastic. So I was thinking about how to approach this episode, the last episode of the year. The time right now, holidays, family, but also an incredible amount of mindless consumerism and shopping and big business and Amazon. There's gotta be something we can do in terms of systemic change and addressing where all this destruction begins. When I got on the phone with Frankie, I had to get right to the point. Even with all of the incredible stuff he does, he has the courage to call out the systems that keep us in these cycles of harm. And he also has a tangible solution. Here's what he has to say from San Antonio, Texas.
1: 99% of plastic is made from fossil fuel. You know, and I remember this reporter one time saying that, you know, here we are talking about the environment how how it's, you know, polluting our water and in, in, in our air and our land and the wildlife and our health as human beings. And what did you think was going to happen when you pull death out of the ground and use it? And I was like, wow, man, that's pretty powerful. I remember an elder coming from Alaska saying, you know, there's going to be a day that comes where we're going to pay more for a gallon of water than a gallon of gas. The water shouldn't be commodified. The corporate world will never give the right solutions to our water crisis or protecting what's in the best interest of all human beings, you know, because they're all about profits and they're always gonna put profits before the people and we need, we need to hold them accountable. And plastics is a very, very huge issue uh, because of how much it pollutes the land, the air, our health, the, the, the communities that it affects, There's, those POC communities, those, you know, the, the, the individuals that have to live with it every day and you know we need to be able to come together to stand up against it
2: so when we talk about getting at the root cause how do we address where it all begins what are the questions we need to be asking
1: who's funding the pipelines, who's funding the projects, who's funding the companies, who's funding Energy Transfer Partner, who's funding all these pipelines, and not just the pipelines, but their infrastructures, the desal plants, the the uh, export terminals, onshore, offshore, the greenwashing that's happening. Find out who those companies are and, and hold them accountable. Defunding from the banks and defunding from the other, you know, corporations that help these larger companies is a huge advantage to to the fight against uh, fossil fuel.
2: And Frankie, who are these banks? Like Chase and Wells Fargo?
1: Yeah, J P Morgan's a big part of it. Wells Fargo, Chase, yeah, Chase. I mean, we we had a whole event back in two thousand nineteen with J P Morgan. Stop funding fossil fuels climate change stop We started showing up to chase banks and Wells Fargos and you know other banks that were investing in, in oil infrastructure
2: If it's not the big banks you know where can people put their money like I've heard this term credit union I feel like I need to take this step.
1: You know, we moved away from, I think, I think at the time we had Capital One and before that, I think we had Chase, but then we moved to Capital One and then we found out Capital One was a part of some of the funding. So then we ended up, you know, with the, with the smaller San Antonio bank. You look at where they're putting their money, where's their investments. You know, where, you know, who are they working with?
2: What I love about this is that everybody can do it. Take a Saturday afternoon, banks are open on Saturdays, and make the switch. Because we absolutely have to get beyond, okay, I brought my canvas bag. I'm not going to get the straw. Like, okay, do that, but let's get to the infrastructure like you talk about. And anybody can do it.
1: We need to force the 1%, those corporations that dictate what society becomes dependent on force them to make the changes because then at that time, we'll, the, the change will be so drastic, so large that we will make some drastic change for a better, healthier future for our kids. So it's a matter of forcing the 1%, those corporations to stop pushing uh, what they know um, is a failing system in itself.
2: Well, it's, it continues this colonial attitude. Like exploiting, 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 we're never gonna be able to reprogram the way we operate in society unless they are put in their place.
1: You know, we literally have to deprogram ourselves from what society has convinced us is okay to reprogram ourselves with some of the older teachings and the older ways of surviving and living and thriving um, in a more healthier, sustainable way.
2: I would love to hear more about those teachings and you know, how you were raised.
1: My father uh, was raised here and born here. I grew up with my Chumash and Tama communities and and, uh, and, uh, elders. Because I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in, in different communities.
2: Talk to me about the cultural fabric in your community and the people and your loved ones that you're surrounded by.
1: They think of Texas and they think, oh, there's not very many native people in Texas. The history of Texas is very, very different to compared to many other states when it comes to the, you know, the native community because of, you know, what our people here in Texas have gone through. We trace our family back to the like 1800s, and um, so I came here to learning a lot about uh, our family and the genealogy where we were able to. Trace it. Trace our family here to, to the late 1700s, uh, early 1800s.
2: Here's a little bit of background on Frankie. He is the executive director of the Society of Native Nations, which was founded by a small group of Native people in Texas. And what they do is work on a wide range of issues, including water protection, refugee rights, helping the unhoused, climate change, petrochemicals, and plastic. The organization works with indigenous communities not only in the U.S., but Mexico and South America as well.
1: We actually have a small cultural center in El Salvador uh, where we have about 22 small little students and they're learning the Papil Nahua dialect. Yeah, they're learning the language and at the same time being taught about environmentalism. They're, you know, they're over there protecting the monkeys in the forests from uh, infrastructure. Uh, from companies here in the United States.
2: I have always had deep respect for indigenous communities because to me, your folks in so many ways have been the original environmental activists because it's so innate to you and you speak very beautifully about this and I'd love for our listeners to hear from you.
1: So what I tell people is that, you know, the, the words in the context of environmentalism and activism is a part of our culture and a part of our spirituality and way of life long before those words even existed because the elders have taught us to leave a place better than the way that we found it. So our next generation, our children and our children's children have something to look forward to, a healthy environment, uh, not just to survive, but to thrive in. And we nurture it and we, you know, help to preserve it. um, So that way they have something to look forward to and not dread.
2: Well, let's talk about when things are in disequilibrium, right? And you are one of the most prominent figures from the indigenous community really speaking up around plastic pollution and petrochemicals, and I'm so grateful for your voice.
1: Because, you know, the corporate greed and the corporate mentality, some like to say, oh, you know, let's talk about historical trauma. And, and I say, no, it's not historical trauma because that means that it was left in history and it's not because it still exists today. It just looks different with different approaches and uh, different tactics and, you know, it's still happening today and, and plastics is part of that.
2: I'm going to take a second here and interject because what Frankie goes into next on fracking is really important. It's the backbone of all of this destruction. Imagine a bunch of dominoes lined up. The first tile to fall is fracking. The last is your plastic cup, your straw, your bag.
1: So when you're talking about the fracking, and their fracking is is the is the beginning root of it all, right? Because you're you're pulling that debt out of the ground, and you're putting it into these pipelines, and the pipelines are running all across our lands and our backyards, and under our children's schools, and through our rivers and our waters, and you know, damaging everything in sight. It's it's not if it's when it's going to break or contaminate. You know, we see it all the time. That, the catastrophic events you see throughout Texas, throughout California, throughout the country, and throughout the world, they're all interconnected. Just think about the communities that they run through. You know, they're predominantly always POC communities.
2: And I think what's startling and disheartening to me is your land was stolen, full stop. Your land continues to get toxic facilities planted on them. Yet you're so dedicated to reprogramming the way we coexist with Mother Earth.
1: Where I find the hope, where I find the inspiration and and the young people that are speaking up now today or, you know, the world being more aware of climate change and and the issues that impact all of us. Being on this webinar this morning with with these college students, things like that inspire me and make me so happy to see so many young people signing up. And addressing these issues and they're being invited to the table
2: we talk about this a lot of people over plastic is not only having a seat at the table but really creating those spaces in the first place i want to talk to you about how you felt when secretary deb holland was confirmed you know this is the first native person to lead a cabinet agency
1: that's inspiring you know and a woman Of leadership. You know, there were so many different things that took place when she, you know, took on this position. And um, I don't think many people know what that means to to our communities.
2: This is a 172-year-old federal agency known for the genocide of Native Americans. So it's really, you know, it's exciting. It's at a pivotal point in history.
1: We as men have always had our, our women and our and our aunties and grandmas behind us whenever we were doing something. Right now that they're standing up doing uh, what's right, protecting uh, our sacred sites and our burial sites, doing what we know is right, we need to be able to stand behind them. We need to be able to stand alongside them. We need to support them and elevate them. To me, when my girls were born, I was like, those are the women I want my girls to be around all the time.
2: You know, Frankie, when I was just starting out in this field back in 2007, one of my first projects was actually working on saving the Arctic from oil drilling. I was 22 and desperately concerned with the loss of biodiversity, especially the harp seals. And I know you've been fighting the fight in this area of the world. What exactly happened in 2019 with that company that was doing seismic testing in the Arctic refuge? The Arctic is not a barren, frozen wasteland. In fact, it's seen as quite valuable. The Trump administration is now selling leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas companies.
1: We showed up, we protested, we, you know, walked into their office. We asked for accountability. We asked them to stay away from the Arctic Refuge and it was kind of a small win because they ended up pulling out their contract.
2: And why was the Arctic Refuge so important to the indigenous community there in particular?
1: Well, they wanted to do some more drilling in the Arctic Refuge where the calving grounds are for the caribou and which is a very sacred place to to the people of Alaska, you know, the indigenous people because a lot of them survive off the hunting of the caribou. That's how they still survive today because it's so expensive to buy groceries in Alaska and to survive in Alaska. It's a sacred place because that's where the caribou go to give to give birth to the calves. And so then it was there at that moment that I realized, you know, you can affect these bigger corporations um, in other ways by affecting their money.
2: So what's your sense of how everyday people can be better allies to indigenous communities?
1: All we're asking is that society step up to the plate and acknowledge the true history of what has happened to the original people of this land. So that way the healing can begin. And I think that if we can just get to a point where we understand, like when we say like land back, I always tell people, we don't own, we're not saying we physically want the land back. When we say Give me my land back it 's not saying that we want to own it we 're saying it like in a sense of endearment, like give me my mother, give me my father, give me my children, give me my loved ones back because that 's what the land is to us it 's our connection to those that came before us, and it 's going to be our connection to those that come after, after us you know, make it so that native people don 't get don 't get thrown in jail for going and collecting medicines
2: before we close, Frankie, in your opinion. What can we do to get closer to reprogramming our future, especially for Black, Indigenous, and people of color that are closest to this issue?
1: I realized the most success had come from affecting the money. And that's why I think it's always so important to become, you know, to help help these communities become their own media. We're going to continue moving forward, and it's just going to get bigger and bigger. And I think that's... Partially why I think, you know, the, the, that 1% are scared.
2: Next, we're hopping over to Bangalore, India to speak with Indian artist Shiloh Shiv Suleiman, who disrupts the status quo with her public art interventions. Her latest project, At The Root, was a massive mural honoring indigenous elders of unrecognized lands that literally shook things up at the biggest climate conference in the world.
0: I guess my own story begins actually at a moment of fear. When my mother found herself a single mom responsible for two kids with no idea kind of how to raise them. And so she began to paint. In her late 30s, she began to paint as a both as a financial as well as an emotional backbone for um, her. And um, I often say that beauty saved me um, because mm. beauty really became into um not only a a way for us to be able to nourish and sustain ourselves but also for a way for us to heal and transform and even though it started off from this space of uh, fear what's beautiful about any kind of artistic process is that it is a form of emotional alchemy so Mm -hmm. both mine and my mother's worlds transformed completely into the glorious magical realist universe that
2: we now inhabit live in bangalore india and i've always been so drawn to it because my home state is it's a little bit more conservative (laughs) so um bangalore being this sort of like booming metropolis i want to know if the next generation of young indians are responsive to your work because it is quite provocative in a generally conservative culture
0: the youth in india including myself are We're aching, we're seeking, we're thirsty, you know, Um, Mm. we find ourselves in a very interesting position where on one hand, a lot of the archaic traditions um, of previous generations no longer serve us. But on Mm -hmm. the other hand, the only solution or the only alternative that we see is a very white, very globalized, very colonized identity. Mm -hmm. So I think for a lot of young people when they see work like mine it represents a contemporary Indian identity that can draw from the wells of the ancient um, and and reclaim what does uh, serve us while simultaneously um, standing strong for a future that none of our ancestors could ever dream of. What is the colour of protest? What is the shape of your gentle body as it learns to heal itself again and again?
2: How do you really embody that spirit and that energy?
0: Beauty saves, um, and it continues to save me every day. And I think there's a great value in making the invisible visible. Be it uh, stories of uh, waste speakers in Delhi, like the project that we worked on together, and. Um, mm-hmm. You know, having kind of used art as a very conscious tool uh, in my own healing process when I was much younger, I have no doubt in its ability to be able to heal um, communities that we work with as well. We work with communities that are often the most invisible, you know, people that, that no one is speaking yes. about, people that no one is seeing, and we make them visible through these huge public monuments that we make, these huge murals that we make. Um And also, like, most recently, uh, we just painted with indigenous communities at COP26 in Glasgow.
1: The COP26 summit in Glasgow revealed huge global divides on tackling climate change. Scientists say the pledges to cut emissions and preserve our planet don't go far enough.
2: Let's take a second to talk about COP26, also known as the United Nations Climate Change Conference, that took place just a couple months ago. It happens to be the biggest climate conference in the world. But the thing about COP is that it's romanticized as a savior for fixing the climate catastrophe. In reality, what most people may not know is it's also sponsored by corporations like Unilever, a major global producer of plastic that's fueling the climate crisis. I guess what I'm trying to say is the negotiations and the narrative of world leaders coming together to solve this global crisis is still being run by the man meaning people that have no real understanding of what's happening on the ground to communities that are most impacted It
0: wasn't a very easy experience being at um, at COP26 You fight so hard to get a seat on the table. And then when we actually get there, either we are treated as if we, I mean, either one one is tokenized, like it's like the the diversity check on somebody's panel, or
2: um,
0: I feel like it's, you know, we end up being on the sidelines in a way, because the majority of the people who are there are having a very different conversation.
1: Carbon pricing is one of the most effective and cheapest ways to get there the industries have to commit have to commit seriously
2: commitments commitments party commitments and non-party commitments all those promises promises party commitments commitments
1: commitments have to commit have to commit seriously we have the most magnificent global capital markets we ever imagined we can rapidly deploy that capital capital capital
2: We don't believe that banks will suddenly put trillions of dollars on the table for climate action when rich countries have struggled since 2009 to raise a hundred billion dollars for the world's most vulnerable countries. Humanity will not be saved by promises.
1: whether from ecuador chile or canada indigenous people here at cop 26 say they are united in the ways their communities are being devastated by climate change and they want
0: the world to know we had incredible indigenous leaders from brazil guyana peru north america and while you know in their own nations they would be pretty high up, like they would be the the presidents and prime ministers of their own nations. Mm, Their nations mm. continue to be unrecognized, Uh, their lands Mm. continue to be taken, Uh, the waters continue to be polluted. And COP26, in all honesty, felt like it was a little bit of like a a boardroom, like a business agreement. Felt very, very callous and very unrooted, actually. A lot of the, you know, you walk around and all you would see is like logos of Google, Unilever, Microsoft,
2: I know the feeling because I'm also South Asian. It's the tokenization and being like a diversity check is something we deal with a lot. Let's face it, all the leaders, quote unquote, are white men from the global north with ties to corporation and industry. And it's extremely performative. But what you were doing was boots on the ground. It was real. In the Shiloh, you're the founder of this super inspiring organization called Fearless Collective. Tell us about your process from idea to art intervention.
0: We ask communities how they want to be seen. And usually the images that we create are not against something. Um, They don't stand against or in opposition to something, but they stand actually as affirmations to what we do want. There's so much fear embedded in the the narrative. It was so interesting because even like walking around COP, there was this poster exhibition. And a lot of the posters that were there were like images of like, huge men you know illustrated men holding like a tiny bleeding earth in their hands and being like save us save earth now and it's just this like same kind of colonial white savior like we have to save the planet we have to save the turtles we have to save the tigers without actually without actually doing the work there
2: The thing that excites me most about this process is how you took the message from our Indigenous colleagues directly and asked them how they want to be portrayed and how they want their story shared. So inside, while White Savior is happening, you're doing the real work with the voices that didn't get a seat at the table.
0: It was interesting because like the first set of images that the community came up with were all more traditional imagery of, you know, indigenous people like watering plants or, or sowing seeds. And then they were like, actually, this is really unfair because, again, it's kind of fetish test where like somehow we're always looked at as like Boca Hunters who's like saving the planet. In the meantime, John Smith goes and does whatever the fuck he wants.
2: I think the beautiful thing about your artwork is that it does live on, Right. It's a massive mural in a, in a very visible place. That's usually how Fearless has, has operated. You can't miss it.
0: There is a great deal of gratitude about that kind of visibility. You know, had like mm-hmm. multiple different news channels cover the work there. It really stood out also because on one hand, you know, there were a lot of, of course, negotiations, conference rooms, networking that was happening at COP. And on the other hand, there was protest, but there was really no space for beauty, for reverence, for ceremony, for ritual.
2: The mural at COP26 wasn't Shiloh's first rodeo. She's worked on over 40 different murals in 15 different countries since 2012, ranging from gun violence, LGBTQ rights, and different environmental and social justice issues that a lot of people are afraid to touch. Out of all the countries you've been to, what has been the most game-changing project for you in terms of how you look at the world? The project that we did last year at Shahin Bagh for me was just
0: very close to home because I'm half Hindu, mm-hmm. half Muslim, and and I, I believe India is half Hindu and half Muslim, and ha, you know many other things as well. And um, right now with a very fundamentalist government, there's a very certain Indian identity, a very Hindu yes. um, identity. Rather than then representing or working with another community, I felt like I was really there to reclaim my own space as well. Mentoring, um, you know, young women artists from across um, India, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh.
2: Even since I've met you, you've become this celebrity icon in a way in India. And I, I have honestly, I've been a little bit concerned with the fundamentalist perspectives rising What's the energy like in Bangalore right now?
0: You know, when, when it does come to the protests, it does get quite, quite heavy. Um, and always, mm. especially in terms of environmental activism, Bangalore's always kind of been uh, on top of its game in that sense. India has been splintered, um, not only by colonization, but also by all of its own oppressions um, that came before it. And so the caste system was, is, was an archaic system that was put into place in order to be able to segregate labor. But eventually mm-hmm. it became into um, a way that people were discriminated against.
2: What, from your perspective, is the missing link to get people to care? I believe that the
0: missing link is love. Maybe we do need new stories that, that make us feel a sense of reverence to the earth or a sense of wonder to the earth because I feel like that's another missing link right now, particularly when it comes to plastic, particularly when it comes to environmental issues. The conversations, like I said, either are coming from a space of negotiation or resistance and in between all of that, there needs to be a space for wonder and there needs to be a space for biophilia, love.
2: Before we close, I think it would be really exciting for our listeners to hear about your recent auction with Sotheby's, where you sold a wearable brass sculpture called Temple.
0: It was definitely a magical experience because, as you know, spaces like Sotheby's, they are completely colonial institutions. And, you know, those sorts of institutions have amassed wealth by taking from spaces like India, Africa, Egypt, and placing them inside glass boxes and selling them for millions of dollars. Um, those were not commodities like (laughs) our gods were not commodities our bowls our our jewelry our utensils weapons they were not commodities it's unbelievable where we are right now both in terms of social as well as environmental issues like it it is a burning moment and um, so we need to kind of form
2: a force of love a counter
0: force of love
2: Frankie's brilliant efforts in cutting the funding source to pipelines inspired me to talk about a recent policy win in Washington state. You see, the Washington bill mandates minimum post-consumer recycled content for certain products in order to reduce the demand for new plastic or virgin plastic. Okay, let me tell you what it means and why this is so cool. We do not want new plastic. We don't want it. We know that it comes from fossil fuels, and as we learned, it's so harmful and resource intensive. What this means in Washington is less products will be made from new plastic and minimize the amount of single-use plastic in our lives. And that's our show. You know, when we started People Over Plastic, it was about giving deep gratitude to the BIPOC communities working tirelessly on the ground that are misrepresented and underrepresented. And it was about people that had enough sense about these lived experience, being BIPOC themselves, to be able to tell those stories in a way that was most authentic to them. Shiloh and Frankie don't even know each other, but they are fighting against the same systems that keep many communities of color and indigenous voices silenced. Learn more about them in our show notes. We hope you enjoyed listening to the show and are looking forward to our restful holiday break. Stay tuned for our last episode of season one, airing in the new year. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PeopleXPlastic. See you in 2022.